episode 184, Is Direct Primary Care the Answer? Today, I speak with Alex Lickerman, MD, founder and CEO of Imagine MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Direct primary care, or DPC, could be a way for primary care physicians to take back primary care. I'll let my guest today, Dr. Alex Lickerman from ImagineMD, explain more about what DPC is and its promise. But in a nutshell, DPC is physicians billing a monthly retainer to patients or their employers directly, no insurance involved. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Alex Lickerman, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about direct primary care. Do you say DPC? I do. Okay, so let's call it DPC. If we're talking about DPC, what is it? What problem is direct primary care trying to solve? It's trying to solve a lot of problems. The first problem it's trying to solve primarily is the lack of access that patients have to their primary care physicians, which causes an enormous problem downstream. And so it really is trying to improve care, quality of care, by improving access to care. That's the first thing. The second thing it's trying to solve is the out-of-control pricing and cost of healthcare. And it actually does both by a very simple thing which is reducing the amount of patients each primary care doctor is responsible for. Let's take the first thing first, this access to care and its impact on downstream costs. And we can definitely get into kind of the statistics around this, but I'd be really interested to know if there was sort of a defining moment that crystallized that idea for you. Did something happen where all of a sudden there was the epiphany? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there was. (laughs) What happened was I was an assistant professor at the University of Chicago for about 20 years and had done a lot of things there besides take care of patients, as happens in academics. So the first 10 years, I taught generations of medical students and residents. And the second 10 years, I got sucked into administration somehow. So I ran primary care there for seven years. And then I was the medical officer in charge of implementing EPIC. And then the last five years I was there, I was running student health. And at the end of 20 years, I had to take the boards again because you have to recertify every 10 years. And it was for me the third time I was taking them. And at first I was sort of uh, kind of upset that I was having to take this test again. And as I started studying for it, I, I realized how much I actually loved medicine and how far away from it I had become. And the reason I had gotten far away from it was because the notion of seeing 20 to 24 patients a day with 20 minutes per patient, 10 of which is used up by a nurse getting vitals, taking care of at the University of Chicago where I was, the most complex of the complex patients literally was enough to give me angina. And I had maneuvered my life in such a way that I could minimize the number of patients I was taking care of. But what I realized at the end of this 20 years as I was preparing to take this test was that I really wanted just to be a doctor. And I had flirted with the model, the DPC model, 10 years earlier, but frankly, I thought society wasn't really ready for it. I think when people heard about it back then, and it was 
then termed more concierge care, it sort of had the patina of an elitist movement. And I even felt that way myself. But medicine itself, fee-for-service medicine, had worsened so much in the intervening 10 years that now it seemed to me to be the answer to my desire to become a, a doctor that just saw patients and have an acceptable professional life, as well as an answer to improving the care of the patients themselves. And so my epiphany was, this was a way for me to craft a professional life that I really wanted and to take care of patients the way I thought they really should be cared for. If we are going to define DPC, because you did bring up a term that I have heard bandied about almost as a synonym of direct primary care, which is concierge medicine. So what exactly and specifically is direct primary care and how does it differ from concierge medicine? So concierge medicine was how it started in California in the late 1990s. There were two doctors who had this idea that rather than bill insurance companies for visits that, that their patients made to them, they would actually bill the patients directly a membership fee. Uh, and yet they charged exorbitant amounts of money, $25,000 or $50,000 a year, and maybe were taking care of 50 patients. And, and they, they did this so they could just provide unbelievable levels of white glove customer service. DPC or direct primary care evolved from that. It's really the same exact model, just at a much more affordable price point. And what concierge medicine has evolved into is, because the terms are fluid and different people define these different ways, which makes this kind of confusing. But I think of concierge medicine, one, as being more expensive, and two, often involving a hybrid model where patients are charged a membership fee, but then also are billed fee for service, meaning when they come in to see you, you will bill their insurance company as well, and they'll often have a copay. So pure DPC is what, what I'm interested in doing and what I am doing. And basically, it's like a gym membership. You pay a fixed monthly cost that's well known, and that gives you everything that DPC does. And, and what DPC does is enable you to have uh, much longer appointment times, enable you to have 24-7 access to your doctor directly, except when he or she is on vacation, and to get those appointments within a day or two of calling. And so it really increases the amount of access and time you get to spend with your doctor, and it fixes the cost. So in pure DPC, whether you come and see the doctor once a year or literally once a week, it's exactly the same fee. Just speaking of costs, there's a chart that just came out from the OECD, which showed starkly the United States spending over $10,000 a year per patient. The next highest countries, which were Switzerland and Norway, about 30% less than that, although their life expectancies were 40% higher. So the U.S. basically is spending exorbitant sums for less buying high and getting low. So I, I think this is really meaningful, full stuff here. How does DPC solve for these cost issues? The reason DPC is able to accomplish what it does is because the reason for the exorbitant spending that we have in the United States on patients' health care is it's downstream spending from primary care. There's a, an epidemic of overutilization of healthcare resources. People are getting health care tests and procedures that they don't need. By some estimates, it's 10%, and in some cases I've seen as high as 30%, estimated that the care that people get is not necessary. And that's where a lot of the overspending comes from. It's more than that. Uh, because when you do things to people, when you test them and you, and you do procedures to them, you put them at risk. And so part of the reason our you know, survival, our, our mortality statistics are not tracking with our spending is because in spending money on unnecessary tests and procedures, we're actually hurting people. In fact, sometimes we are actually killing them. 
I like to say, scary as it sounds, that one of the greatest threats to our health is the healthcare system itself. People don't think about the complications that can ensue from even just you know, simple tests. And certainly they think about them from procedures, but they all think that's not going to happen to me. But if you look at it from a population level, it happens to hundreds of thousands of people a year that they're hurt or killed from things that we do in the medical profession. So what direct primary care does is it causes the patients to enter the healthcare system from a single point of contact, their primary care doctor. And a primary care doctor who is accessible and also has the time to actually think through the patient's medical problems themselves, studies show they tend to not overutilize the healthcare system. And I always say this, the reason direct primary care looks so much better both in terms of outcomes and spend than fee-for-service insurance-based medicine is not because direct primary care doctors are by definition so much more brilliant than all other doctors. It's because the system of fee-for-service medicine incentivizes overutilization, provides not enough time for primary care doctors to either see their patients or think things through. And so they over-refer, they send patients to specialists when they don't necessarily need to. When they're not accessible, patients end up going to the ER and are seen by doctors who don't know them and therefore over-test them and over-treat them. And so by making the primary care doctor the first point of contact that's easily accessible, you actually improve quality of care and reduce costs because you're reducing all that unnecessary downstream healthcare utilization. Fee-for-service definitely, it's very well known, rewards procedures and tests, not time. Right. And I actually heard a new word the other day, which I think is really apropos here. It's hyperdiagnosis which is not the mm. same as overdiagnosis. So hyperdiagnosis is the act of seeking of diagnoses. Like we're going to go and look for something that we have missed and come up with all kinds of things that someone didn't even know that they had they have no symptoms for. Right. I, I think uh, you see a lot of the hyperdiagnosis in corporate wellness programs where they're looking for things, they're screening for things and finding things that they don't necessarily need to find. There's an aphorism in medicine I like to quote, which is, don't look under a rock unless you want to get bit by a snake. And there's a lot of things we can find, but that we don't necessarily need to find. In fact, shouldn't find because we don't need to do anything about them. And, and often just finding those things provokes a lot of extra tests and a lot of extra procedures that in the end, Statistically, if you look at studies comparing people who you find these things in or people you don't find these things in, there's no difference in their either quality of health or the length of life. So why are we looking for them? We shouldn't be. Yeah, it, and which is probably why corporate wellness programs actually tend to increase costs as opposed right. to reduce them. That's right. But okay, so let me ask you this then, Alex. We just were talking about DPC as a way to improve access to care. So why in this case, if we're giving patients additional access to care, in other words, they can get an appointment with their DPC provider relatively rapidly and whenever they want, why does that not lead to more diagnoses and more downstream healthcare costs? Right. Because primary care doctors are specialists in general problems. So if you look at what is likely to kill you, it's not leukemia. You know, most people don't get leukemia. Some people do. And if you get leukemia, you need to see a specialist. But the things that contribute mostly to cost in healthcare and into reduced quality of life are diseases that are not very sexy to manage at all. There are things like obesity and diabetes and asthma, congestive heart failure, routine infections, things like that, that primary care doctors are actually specialists in. And studies show that when a primary care doctor manages hypertension, for example, or asthma or any of those other kind of chronic common diseases, 
diseases, they do it by spending less money because they don't necessarily have a PFT lab in their office that a pulmonologist does and an asthma patient. And so they're not actually going to pull it out and use it because you don't necessarily need to use those things to manage asthma. So in general, primary care doctors are just trained at effectively managing the diseases that are most common in the population. And so when they have enough time to think things through and they can practice to the end of their knowledge base and not beyond that, right? They have to know when, yeah, I need help. I need to send you to a specialist. The studies just show they actually, compared to specialty care, taking care of the same diseases, spend less money and actually do a better job. If we're thinking about this, and we just brought up corporate wellness programs. So let's think about this in the context of employers. If I'm an employer, how do I engage with direct primary care? Is this something that a patient needs to make the decision themselves that they want to hire a such a physician? You know, how does this all work? So we think there's a really compelling business case for a self-insured employer for them to hire a direct primary care provider to take care of their employees. The reason is because those direct primary care providers will take care of their employees better, meaning uh, have give them more immediate access, better quality care, and cheaper than if they, their employees are being seen in the fee-for-service world. So how can an employee get access to a direct primary care practice? There's many different ways. So what we do is, if an employer is interested in hiring us to take care of their employees, we come in and we talk in front of the entire employee group, explain the model, explain what we are, and basically say, if you're interested in this model, your employer has decided to pay for our services. And so you can just sign up and we will become your primary care providers. The employers can do this in many ways. And I don't know if this is what you want to get into now, but sort of how can they decide to hire a direct primary care practice? So one thing they can do is they can say, this is a special benefit we want to reserve for our C-suite executives. They want to replace, say, an executive health program, which for triple the cost usually gets their employees one or two days of a whole bunch of tests they don't actually need that actually leads to hyperdiagnosis and then they don't have a doctor the rest of the year compared to a third of the cost you have a doctor who actually is going to test you appropriately and be your doctor as long as you want him or her to be you may also say this is an incredible benefit I want to offer it to all my employees because I'm trying to win the talent war and this is something that everybody hates to deal with and yet I'm going to provide this service, this fantastic doctor access to my employees, and I'm going to actually attract them and maintain them in our company because this is such a great benefit. And they can choose to pay it entirely themselves for their employees. They can cost share it with their employees if they want, or they can just introduce us to their employees and and say, any employee who's interested in this, you can pay the fee yourself, but we're happy to introduce you to to the group. Now, the other way that employers can pay for this is if they have, for example, an HSA or an HRA fund that they're funding for their employees, they can actually take the amount of money that a DPC would charge each employee per month out of the HSA bucket and into a different bucket where the employer is actually paying for it themselves. So it's actually expense neutral to the employer, but then the employee gets this fantastic benefit and the employer benefits also because the cost goes down. And there are case studies around the country of employers who've said, yeah, you know what? I want to offer direct primary care to my employee group. And they say basically, okay, here's the model to their employees. And whoever here wants to sign up, you sign up, we're going to cover it. And there are some examples where half of the employees said, this sounds great, I'm going to sign up. And because these companies are self-insured and they have access to their data through their TPAs, they can actually follow the data and find out how much money it saves. And in fact, there's a guy named Mark Watson 
of Union County, North Carolina, who did this and found that they saved about $1.4 million on the employees, half of whom signed up for DPC in one year. Let me ask the obvious question here. What do insurance companies think of this? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that's an evolution. Uh, On the one hand, insurance companies, because of the ACA, are finding the only way for them to actually make more money is by increasing their premiums because they are limited by the percentage uh, that the stop loss ratios are now fixed. So if they have more utilization, they actually can get more money. So you would think on, on the one hand, well, if, if they're having fewer claims, they're, they're saving money, but in fact, they have motivation to have more claims. And so they don't like DPC that way. On the other hand, the number of insurance companies are recognizing that this old model is not going to be sustainable. And we actually have had a call from one very large insurance carrier saying, I'm in charge of innovation and I'm really interested in the DPC idea and can I learn about this? And they were very hesitant calling us first because they figured we're mortal enemies or something. <laughs> but in fact, we think they're smart. We, we actually, when we started, we were talking to a local small insurance carrier in Chicago saying, you know, you should create a wraparound plan with DPC where you offer to pay for our fee for your beneficiaries yourselves and you create a sort of a catastrophic wraparound plan so that it just covers the really intense large expenses and offer this as a special service to your beneficiaries. And they were very excited about that because they're thinking we can carve out this area of the market for ourselves. So they're never going to be a Blue Cross Blue Shield or United Healthcare. They were thinking we could be known as a small, really innovative kind of experimental health insurance plan that has this really neat offering. And they're very excited about it. And then they went out of business. And they went out of business for reasons completely unrelated to, you know, the idea of bringing in DPC. But the point is that from our perspective, it makes tremendous sense that a large carrier would create a wraparound sort of catastrophic plan with reduced premiums and underwrite it lower because they know with DPC, they're going to actually have fewer expenses to pay on their beneficiaries. Yeah. And I think that just highlights another example of what is rampant in this industry, where it's, what's the term? Coopetition? <laughs> Coopetition. I like that. <laughs> because, you know, if you're a PPO, obviously you could regard this as as competition. But if you're trying to reduce exposure simply with not even considering the the benefits to the patient, but just totally taking this from a a business perspective, it reduces exposure and creates some future proofing. The best way to do things generally wins in the long run. Yeah, I guess it depends on who you are. I mean, I think the current system is such that the insurance companies have a perverse incentive for patients to get more care. Hospitals certainly have a perverse incentive for patients to get more care. In fact, the former uh, head of uh, primary care at a large academic institution in Chicago once said to a colleague of mine, well, we don't want to increase primary care services. We want the downstream revenue primary care provides the hospital. That's how the hospital makes a lot of money. And hospitals, if you were to ask me how they feel about DPC, they hate it. I mean, they're interested in getting into it because they're thinking, oh my goodness, right. So if we have these private practice DPC docs who are in our network or sort of we own, they can then, all their patients who need tertiary care, they'll send them to us. The problem is, the costs for everything at tertiary care centers or large hospital systems are incredibly expensive. And so for a self-insured employer to want to sign up for a DPC practice that happens to be owned by a large hospital network and to expect that they're going to see the cost savings that DPC promises is a fantasy. And so I think any of these hospitals that are, we're starting to see this, they're starting to get a little interested in this thinking that they can capture this market share. But the problem is their strategy is going to ruin the model. And so I think as employers are getting more and more sophisticated, 
with benefits consultants who are sophisticated in explaining this to them, they'll say, well, yeah, I'm very interested in DPC, but not a DPC that's owned by a large hospital because it, it makes no sense because the hospital then is just going to look at that DPC as a feeder for them to come in and get more expensive procedures and tests that they can capture. And so as a DPC provider myself, who's interested in bringing on employer groups, the last thing in the world I'm going to do is send those employees to expensive hospital systems when I can find high quality, better, cheaper alternatives. And is that part of the mission, maybe you'd call it, of a DPC provider to really help identify who the quality, more cost-effective specialists are, maybe ones that don't have facility fees, for example? What I love about DPC is that it aligns incentives exactly as they should be. So my incentive as a physician has always been to take the best possible care of my patients, give them the best outcome. And now, as a DPC owner and businessman, it's still exactly that same thing. Because if I don't take good care of you, and if I don't reduce your cost in doing so and send you the highest quality specialty care when you need it, you're going to leave my practice. My incentive is to keep you. And so I'm always going to be looking for the highest quality, cheapest options for care that needs to go on outside of my office, because that's how I keep you healthy and happy and in my practice. I want to go back to something that you mentioned early on, which is that you had a revelation how far you had gotten from the practice of medicine. And you went to medical school for a reason. You're not feeling super happy about this, which, by the way, is a huge contributor of physician burnout, which is why the triple aim turned into the quadruple aim, (laughs) the fourth uh, prong of the or fourth aim being to, you know, physician satisfaction or healthcare provider satisfaction, you know, including nurses and case managers and everybody else who's intimately involved in patient care on the front lines of, of patient care. One thing that has been said, however, so there's the plus. On the other side, it has been said that direct primary care could contribute to the physician shortage because an actual doctor is providing care that perhaps in a larger setting, you know, a nurse practitioner might be able to provide or or someone else. Yeah, well, I thought what you you were going to say is the reason it is going to exacerbate the physician shortage is because by definition, Direct primary care doctors take care of fewer patients. Yes, so if you and take, that. Yes, that too. <laughs> so if you have all the right, if you have all these private practice docs or even docs in academic centers who are taking care of a minimum 2,500 patients, which is what the statistic is, and I've seen it go as high as 4,000, and then they're going to cut down to what's sort of a standard-ish number in DPC, which is 600 patients per doctor. Well, just do the math. By definition, there's going to be patients who are going to have a harder time finding primary care doctors if a large percentage of primary care doctors in America do this all at once. And my answer is, yeah, that, that could happen. However, there is already a primary care physician shortage because somewhat upwards of 50% of primary care doctors right now hate what they're doing, hate the system, and want to leave it and are probably going to leave it. If we don't do something to, to make the profession of primary care look more attractive to medical students and residents coming out of school and residency with what now amounts to maybe $250,000 in student loans, we're going to have a worse shortage than we do right now. And so my thinking is long term, we need to actually make what primary care physicians do look really attractive to people. And and so more people are going to want to go into primary care. And so depending on the rate at which that happens, we may or may not have a short-term shortage. I think you're seeing the adoption of direct primary care by f- primary care physicians in the fee-for-service world is accelerating. And so I think we, we are at risk for having a short-term shortage, especially in rural areas. The shortage is not evenly spread out across the country is an important point to make. 
But it's hard to convert your practice. Uh, doctors are notoriously risk averse. And so it's not happening maybe as fast as it, it might. And therefore, the shortage in the short term may not be as bad. But when only 2% of medical students are interested in going to primary care, and that data is from a JAMA article in 2007, down from 9% in the late 90s because of a lot of reasons that are not that hard to figure out, I worry more about the long-term shortage of primary care doctors because people are looking at what primary care doctors do now in fee-for-service and they're saying, why would I ever want to do that? Why would I want to have that kind of life? So DPC offers a fantastic balance, the ability to uh, have a uh, home life without uh, having to go home and do your notes uh, and, and do all the work you can't have time to do during the day at home, as well as uh, professional satisfaction where you feel like you're practicing really top-level medicine because you have the time to do it. Do you feel that that is a worthy carrot? that there are some young medical students right now who might be thinking to themselves, even at that stage in their career, huh, I'm going to go into primary care because I see I can work from home and I have a lot of flexibility and I can live anywhere I want and I can... Yeah, I don't know if it's so much they can work from home or, or that, but it's more that they can construct a day where they're, instead of seeing 20 to 24 patients, they're seeing six. And they can spend time with those patients to feel as if they are practicing really high-quality medicine. They can make actually a really good living and enjoy their lives and, and have balance and not feel like they're on a treadmill, not be beholden to a third-party insurance carrier so that their medical notes are actually billing documents, but practice medicine the way it used to be practiced and really should be practiced. That, that's a very attractive thing. And I think there are a lot of students out there who would love to go into primary care if they had an option like that. But when they don't have that option and when they have you know 50% of primary care doctors saying, boy, you, you don't even come near my profession, and uh, they have, as I say, a quarter of a million dollars. And, and loans to repay, they're looking at radiology and dermatology and maybe surgery. And we have to make it more attractive for them. And they are thinking about this. I mean, as a medical student, as a fourth year medical student, as a third year medical student, you're thinking intensely about what are you going to go into? That's the time you make that decision. Then you choose that residency slot. And a lot of people go into internal medicine. And you know, there's the three years of training for that, where after that, you can go out and be a, a primary care doctor, or you can go on to do a fellowship and be a specialist. And they're saying to themselves, I love primary care. I love general medicine, but I can't survive as a primary care doctor in today's environment. I have to go into a specialty. And that's why we have this reverse ratio of specialists to primary care doctors in this country, because in this country, we also value specialization and technology. And I think we've overvalued it. And, and I think that ratio needs to change. Let's take a look at this from the disparity of care angle, something which is often said about DPC as well, because in order to take advantage of the benefits of DPC, obviously, you have to be able to afford it. And you could afford it maybe because your employer, because you're employed at an employer <laughs> who offers it, or you pay for it yourself. And there's a lot of individuals that don't fall into either one of those buckets, being able to afford it themselves or working for an employer that that offers it. Is this kind of outside of the scope of you can't solve the entire problem, but you can solve a piece of it and that's just fine? Or is this something that you think about? No, I think about this a lot. I mean, I, you know, coming from the University of Chicago on the south side of Chicago, I took great pride in having a cohort of patients who were incredibly poor and otherwise would never have had access to the medical minds you see at the University of Chicago, their neighborhood people, many of whom didn't even have a third grade education. And I feel very strongly that DPC should not be a model that exacerbates the disparities in healthcare. I don't want it to be that. And there's a couple of points to make about this. One is it's not so much, I think, that most people can't afford this. The price points you see for DPC, depending on where you are, 
can be anywhere from $60 per month to $150 per month. And I'll tell you, when I was leaving the University of Chicago and I was telling my patients that I was doing this and how much I was charging, even the ones who were you know, low socioeconomic status said, well, that, that's, not in, that, that's money, but, but that's not an impossible amount of money. It really was more a matter of do they feel that money was going to get them value. And so it, it struck me that it's not just the cost, which is an issue for some people for sure. It's the value they think that that price brings them. That's one issue. The other issue is there definitely is going to be a segment of society that no matter how cheap you make this, they can't afford it. And my feeling about this is that you could do subsidies. The government could actually do subsidies, for example. The government already subsidizes Medicaid and, and Medicare. And in fact, you know, if you believe the studies and it shows that compared to our current system, direct primary care doctors save money, you could take that savings. The government could take that savings and actually subsidize the DPC fees for people who cannot afford DPC. Theoretically, everyone in America could have a DPC doctor if we had enough doctors and we, we you know, wanted to allocate the resources to it. But compared to the way we're spending money now, it very well may be even cheaper. So I think that a solution could be had and could be done. And frankly, that's my interest. I mean, I, I think we, right now we're at a place where we're trying to prove out the model for the people who can easily afford it. But I think it's important as we do that and the, and the model spreads, which I think it's going to, that we don't leave behind the segment of society that cannot afford it. And I think there are ways to solve that problem. So how's your lobbying arm, Alex? Can you get an innovation project uh, funded yeah, for yeah. <laughs> Medicare? There are, there, are, there are a lot of people in this field who are, uh, are doing that work and in Washington and sort of talking about this. And I think what I like about this movement is that, that Washington is not what's coming to save us. The Calvary from Washington is not coming. It's a grassroots movement, individual people sorting this out, figuring it out themselves, figuring out how to make it work. And I, I have a lot more faith in the collective intelligence of the benefits community, the physician community, and the business community than I do in the political community. Although inside that business community are the legacy players, which arguably have an incredible vested interest in ensuring that nothing gets disrupted here. That is true. But you know what? I don't think they're going to be able to resist it because this the groundswell has already begun and employers who are responsible for ensuring 50% of Americans are beginning to say, we cannot tolerate these increases in our rates, which by the way, are not tied to increases in the cost of healthcare. They're just increases in insurance rates and they're looking for alternative solutions and it's starting slow. But the problem for, th for the insurance companies is the solution we have is actually a better one. And people eventually are going to find it out and they're going to start taking it. And eventually if the the Blues and the United Healthcare's don't get on board and sort of uh, figure out a way to survive the new ecosystem, they're going to be obsolete. But if there's no drive for efficiency and the price is cost plus, <laughs> then, yeah. there's, then there is every incentive to figure out a way to make the costs go up, whether they're warranted or not. You know, like yeah. you can yep. always throw a couple more admins and buy a new machine. So talk yep. about Imagine MD, the company that you founded. As you said, it's called Imagine MD. We are Chicago-based, but we have great ambition to scale nationally, and we're looking to go where demand is. And so we've we've partnered with a number of benefits consultants, and are interested in partnering with more who are, have self-insured clients or clients who they're taking self-insured who are interested in the DPC model. And, and we figured out a way to do a feasibility analysis in any market and figure out whether we can seat an office because. Part of the problem with DPC is that doctors who are single shingles in the fee-for-service world, it's it's risky for them to do this on their own, and they're not necessarily business people. And so, our goal is to grow the model in society and really see this start to work for people in general. 
And if someone is interested in learning more about, I'm going to start with DPC, and then I'm going to ask if they where, where they can go if they want to learn more about ImagineMD. But if someone is interested in digging deeper into direct primary care, where would you direct them? Like, where do you think some really good resources are that they might want to take a look at? Well, there's a lot. I mean, you know, it's become a very common term. If you look at Google and the search volume for DPC in the last year alone, it's it's dramatically increased. So people are starting to hear about this and look for it. And if you just sort of Google DPC or near me or DPC, there's so many articles on the web. But to be honest, our website really is a lot about educating people about what DPC is. And so it's not just sort of an advertisement for our own company. So I would encourage people to go there. We put a lot of information and, and uh, conglomerated a lot of uh, links and uh, around the, the web to sort of explain it in a really simple way that people can understand it. I love it when I ask two questions and get one answer. Very efficient. (laughs) So that would be imaginemd.net. Imaginemd.net. This has been a very interesting conversation. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Dr. Alex Lickerman. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.